So here we stand, right? At the edge of uh, another grand adventure as we are invited to enter into uh, the Christmas season. We, we stand here uh, recognizing what the Christmas season is about. Uh, it's about divinity becoming humanity. It's about hope becoming reality. Uh, it is really uh, about promise being fulfilled. Uh, we know the story of Christmas. And as uh, we watch once again God's great love collide with our deep brokenness, uh, there is this temptation that as we enter into this Christmas season, uh, knowing the story ahead of time and, and, and being part of it multiple times in the past, that we would kind of breeze through the season and, and so just hear the story and where we will find our joy is in the familiar sense of this story, in, in the remembrance of what we already know and in all the stuff out there the snow on the Christmas tree, the lights, and, the, and the, the goodwill that travels through our humanity. But I gotta tell you, the invitation of the Christmas season, year after year after year as we revisit the story, is to discover in brand new deep ways the incredible truths, the incredible wonder, uh, the great realities of our life and light and freedom in this Christmas story. We get to assume that every time we enter this story, there are new things yet undiscovered for us to find. We should assume that because God's story has no end to what is waiting for us to discover. So as we enter into the story this year, as we begin the journey now, I want you to set aside all that you know. I want you to really, uh, in your mind, kind of go, maybe this is the very first time I'm hearing the story again, and enter into it as though it it was the first time you're entering into the story. And let's see what happens as we walk into the story of Christmas brand new and see what God has waiting for us there. So with no further ado, here's where the story begins, right? We know the Christmas story really essentially begins uh, in a small little town uh, in Israel called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth uh, was a town that was sort of off the beaten path. It was actually uh, one of the last points before you entered into Samaria. Uh, uh, Samaria. So uh, it was a town that was kind of uh, almost on the edge of the bad stuff. You with me? Uh, it was outside of all the urban settings. This was small town life. Uh, there were uh, generally a number of families that lived in this town, and what you would find in Nazareth is a generational reality taking place. Uh, you have generations there in Nazareth. Once you were born in Nazareth, you didn't leave Nazareth. Okay, that's kind of how it rolled. And so you were there, your children were there, their children were there, and their children's children were there. It wasn't unusual in a town like this uh, to find three, four generations living together in the same setting, working on the same uh, kind of handcraft, whether it was being a carpenter or, or anything else. And Nazareth was a place that the rest of the world in Israel kind of looked at as uh, kind of in the sticks, the, the simple folk in the simple town, right? If, if you lived in the urban settings like Jerusalem and some of the bigger uh, areas, the bigger cities, uh, uh, Jericho, you might even say, and it's been said of Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, nothing good. Because, because these people, they don't understand how life really works. And they live the simple life. If this was a technological age, I don't know that they would have a smartphone. I don't even know that they'd have a Facebook account if they lived in Nazareth. And we would all be going, man, who doesn't have a Facebook account? Who doesn't have Twitter? I, I don't even understand. And this is what people may have thought of of the people in Nazareth. But here's the deal. 
What we deeply already know is that oftentimes in our hustle and bustle and our rush of life in the urban settings of our world, that it is actually those who live in the simple quiet spaces, the spaces that don't have a lot going on, that seem to have a life of peace and quiet different than ours. There's something deeply special about living in a small town like Nazareth where really uh, you're not striving to build the highest building or uh, be the best in school. You have different sets of dreams in Nazareth. You have a different life that you're hoping to look after. And this is exactly what we find when we bump into the uh, real people in this real story that were living in this real town, Nazareth. We bump into a couple of people in Nazareth specifically, a young man and a young woman. Uh, His name is Joseph, her name is Mary, and they have grown up in this town. They've known each other probably their whole lives, grown up together, and in this town, uh, they're probably in their late teens at this point, maybe early 20s, young people, and they are living the life you would expect someone to live in a town like Nazareth. Uh, Joseph is apprenticing as a carpenter. Uh, He may already be functionally living as part of the family business. His dad was very likely a carpenter, as was his dad before him. That's how it would have played uh, down. Very likely Joseph's grandparents, perhaps even his great-grandparents, are living right there in the same little village. And everybody in Nazareth knows everybody in Nazareth. All the families are highly connected. And so the way it plays out there is that as you grow up as a young teenager, an older teenager... Your parents get to know other families, and if there is a nice young lady, if you're a guy, uh, that they meet, or there's a nice young man, if you're a lady and they meet, the families start talking, oh gosh, wouldn't Mary and Joseph make a cute couple? You know, we do the same thing, we just pretend not to. And so um, uh, the, the, the talk starts happening, and, and if you are Mary and Joseph, and you kind of start, you, you get to know Mary, she gets to know Joseph, and I, I have no doubt Mary talked her parents' ear off. I mean, can you, can you talk to Joseph's parents? He's awesome. And Joseph's like, uh, have you thought about Mary's parents? You should chat with them. We could organize a cup of coffee. And so uh, what we find in the story is by the time we bump into the story, uh, Joseph and Mary have been betrothed to one another. Uh, This is where essentially in this cultural context, they are married, but there is yet preparation to be done uh, in the journey of their marriage. And so it functionally is like an engagement in our culture, except a little more serious. There is some covenant ties to this that our engagements don't hold. And for them, it was the the season of preparation in the marital season. And, And the way it worked in a small town like this, in fact, in most of uh, Israel at the time, is that when you were betrothed, uh, then the husband uh, or to be, the husband theoretically that already is, uh, would go back to his parents' house and he would build onto his parents' house or right beside his parents' house a small room or house for his new wife to come and live in. And so you would, you would hear this, I'm going to go prepare a room for you or a, a home for you uh, by my parents' house. Because uh, functionally in this society, you grew up around all the generations. They all helped raise your kids and as you were raised by multiple generations. And because you were apprenticing with your dad, that was the work you did. And so here's the deal. Joseph is likely in the process of preparing a place for Mary to come to. Mary's waiting for the great ceremony that will ultimately bring her home to her groom. And everything's going well in town. Mary is living her dream. 
She's a young lady. She has an honorable man that her parents have organized with his parents to get her together with. She's super excited about Joseph. She loves him. She's grown up with him. She's very excited. She's going to grow up in the town she loves where she was raised. She's going to grow up right near her parents, and she's going to have children, and she's going to raise those kids right here in Nazareth, and her husband is going to be part of that family that's the carpenter in town, and he is a good man, an honorable man who has a long reputation in his family. This is, this is what you dream about if you grow up in Nazareth. Growing up, finding a great husband, raising kids, and doing life simply in the beautiful rhythms of agriculture, the beautiful rhythms of God that he has established. They are a devoted uh, couple, this couple. They love God deeply. Uh, They obey him. And so you just see the good life written all over this story. Joseph certainly living his dream. Are you kidding me? I mean, he is a quiet man. You can already tell. Like, just not a, not a whole lot of jumping around doing crazy stuff. He's a carpenter. He's diligent. He's obedient. He's compliant. He's, he just, he thinks things through well. He's kind-hearted and, and, and just loves people. And in little Nazareth, he is uh, with his dad. He's, he is doing what he loves to do. He's a carpenter. And he can see the writing on the wall. He gets Mary as his wife, probably one of the sweetest girls in town. And she's going to come home to him, and he's going to work hard as a carpenter, providing for his family. He's going to raise his boys and girls, and they're going to turn out to, a bunch, to be a bunch of Marys and Josephs. And when his boys, if he should be blessed enough to have some of those, he will teach them to be great carpenters, and the family legacy will continue. This is the life they're living. One day, Mary is hanging out by herself, apparently, and something extraordinarily strange happens to her. It is the beginning of a brand new chapter in this beautiful story of hers that's so simple and and yet so full of dreams, so full of life. Everything she's ever wanted in life, there it is, handed to her on a platter. She's been faithful, and God is unfolding his faithful story in her. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Luke, and let's take a look at what enters into this little town of Nazareth as we enter into the life of Mary and Joseph and see what God is up to in their lives. We're going to go to Luke chapter 1. If you're using one of our Bibles, it is page 555, 555. Now Joseph's living his dream, Mary's living her dream, Joseph's preparing a house for Mary, she's getting ready to go, she's living out the last bits of her time with her parents, but she won't go far from them, so no worries there, everything's tracking beautifully. In verse, um, in, in verse 39 um, of the Luke chapter 1, it, um, it says this, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, verse uh, 25, verse 25, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. So now there's an angel, his name is Gabriel, and he's coming to Nazareth. So we know the story we've just stepped into, something's about to happen that's going to be pretty awesome, we think. To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph uh, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. So there's Joseph and Mary that we just bumped into and got to know a bit. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, Oh, favored one, the Lord is with you. That's a pretty awesome greeting, wouldn't you say? If an angel shows up, and these are the words coming out of his mouth, greeting, oh, favored one, the Lord is with you, you should basically start there by going, this is probably going to go well. Right? I mean, this is not a reprimand. This is not, what are you doing? This is, well done, good and faithful servant. God is with you. 
Now it says here, Mary didn't jump up and down at this greeting. It says, but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of a greeting this might be. Now part of me kind of goes, Mary, it's not complicated. Okay, well done, Mary. That's a good greeting. But remember, Mary is a very young woman, like I said, probably late teens. She doesn't have 60 years behind her of experience of life. And, and, and she is what you will find to be an incredibly humble heart. Uh, she doesn't think much of herself yet and, and, and doesn't walk around uh, thinking how awesome she is. And so as this happens, she's trying to discern, uh, what, one, why, why is there a glowing man in my house? Uh, Two, why is this glowing man telling me that I am favored by God and that he is with me? One, I know God is with me, but why would I be favored by God? What is this greeting about? Why is he here? Why is he telling me this? And so this is where it goes from here. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this is an extraordinary statement of truth over Mary. Here's this young woman She's about to step into a relationship with Joseph where she's going to be married and they will start bearing children. And this angel tells her, you are going to have a child. It is going to be a son and this son is going to live a life that is going to be an unbelievably great life. Now to Mary or anybody else in this setting, this would have been an incredibly uh, wonderful moment. It, it absolutely would have been because one of the great fears in this societal context is that uh, you as a husband and wife would not be able to bear children because children uh, were an incredible blessing to the, to the world of life there as they continue to be today though our cultures try to tell us otherwise. Uh, children were a great blessing and are a great blessing and so if you couldn't have children, couldn't birth biological children, that was something you feared, especially uh, as a young man and woman getting married. And here Mary's being told, you're going to have a son. And that, you run to Joseph, so excited, go tell him. And not only that, but this particular son is going to be very unique and special because he is going to fit into a category that Mary would have already known about. When she heard the angel say, say these things, she would have automatically known what the angel is referring to is the great promise of God of a coming Messiah who will set his people free. She could not have fully understood what that meant yet in terms of the life of Jesus, the crucifixion, the death, and the resurrection. She would have thought, it, uh, thought of it differently, but certainly those words would have told her, God has chosen you to carry the Messiah. Wow, that's huge. Now, Mary asks a legitimate question next, okay? Because the angel's showing up uh, before she's married, and so she's trying to discern now You've just said, I'm going to conceive a child, and it's going to be a boy, and it's going to be the Messiah that God is sending, the promised one. Uh, when exactly should I be expecting this to happen? How's this going to play out? Uh, because it seems Gabriel showed up a little early, wouldn't you think? I mean, it wouldn't have been better if Gabriel had showed up just after uh, her and Joseph stepped into the new place Joseph prepared for. They'd been married maybe, I don't know, three months, six months, maybe even one month. I mean, just they married, they're, they're in the marital relationship, and the angel shows up and says, Hey, Mary, just so you know, you're going to conceive a boy. He's going to be awesome. He's going to be the Messiah. 
That would have made more sense. So this is pre all of that stuff. So Mary asks this question. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? So Mary must have perceived in that conversation in some way that there was a possibility that this angel was saying to her, you are going to conceive a child now. Now, not, not in a few months when you're hanging with Joseph, right now, you're going you're gonna to conceive a child. So Mary goes, if you're here to tell me this is going to happen now, just out of curiosity, how does that play out? Because I know how things work and I can't have kids yet because I'm a virgin and so that's not possible. And the angel gently says to her, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will, will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God." So here's what the angel says. He says to Mary, a good question, Mary. This son that you're going to conceive is going to be before you and Joseph are married. It's going to happen now. And it's going to happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. And you will conceive this child not naturally but supernaturally. Because what the angel did not explain to Mary then because it, wasn't, it was pointless because she wouldn't have understood and we wouldn't have understood is that there are massive implications to this reality. If Jesus was born through natural means between a man and a woman, then all of what was transferred into our flesh would be transferred into his flesh. The sin nature would go to Jesus. But part of the reason why this had to be a birth the way that it was is because Jesus Jesus was coming in flesh and blood to us, but he was coming not carrying the nature of sin that had come with our flesh and blood. So he was born uh, supernaturally, not naturally in terms of his conception. And so now we see Mary suddenly realizing she is going to be pregnant with a supernatural child before she's been with Joseph. Now, if, if, if I were Mary, I'm not saying she did. I'm just saying if I were Mary, I might ask a question like this next. Gabriel, are you going to go around the whole village and tell them all what you've told me? I'm just curious. Because at some point, when this pregnancy starts showing itself, and I'm doing the math backwards, people are going to talk. I just want, I'm just going to say it. Because they're going to wonder, how is it that you're here, and yet you and Joseph weren't there until there? I don't, I don't understand. And so that would have been my question. That's not what Mary asked. But I start going, okay, this is an interesting moment because for all of us here, because we know the story, we go, wow, what a, what a beautiful thing. I mean, how, how blessed is Mary that God would show up to Mary's life and say, you are going to carry the Messiah. But when we actually start analyzing the reality of what's about to happen and you observe the circumstances that come with this, it doesn't feel so much like a blessing anymore, does it? See, Mary is going to get pregnant and she is going to show a child at some point and the entire town is going to go, what, what happened? And here's what Mary's going to tell them. I, nothing happened. This was a supernatural act of God. An angel showed up in my house and told me I'd be pregnant by the Holy Spirit because the child in my belly is the Messiah that was promised to all of you. How's that going to go down? I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying, let's just be honest. That's not going to go well. 
because we have a single observation up to that point. Remember, uh, we have 2,000 years of history. We have the entire church. We have the, the death on the, cru- on the cross. We have the resurrection from the dead. Uh, we have the story of the gospel. We have all the writings of the New Testament. That's why the story is beautiful to us, because we know the end. But Mary doesn't even know the, the middle yet. She doesn't even know what her son's going to be. She only knows she's going to be pregnant and she's going to have to do some explaining. Now, the angel did say, Mary, I have great news for you. There's another story that's brewing simultaneously as yours. It's the story of Elizabeth, one of your relatives who's also pregnant now. Elizabeth and Zechariah, they lived in Judah in a town up there. Zechariah was one of the priests and uh, in Zechariah's life, he was at the very end of his priesthood, probably in his 60s um, or Uh, certainly approaching uh, his late 60s. And in the priesthood, uh, there was this beautiful tradition that uh, during your priestly life, uh, there were these lots drawn. And if you were blessed enough to receive one of the lots to go to Jerusalem to work in the temple for a short season, uh, to work inside the temple burning the incense, that was a great honor. Zechariah had received that honor very late in his life, sort of the last chance he had to potentially do that. And while he was in the temple burning incense, uh, Gabriel showed up with him as well. It's all in chapter one. And when Gabriel showed up to him, Gabriel said to Zechariah, your wife Elizabeth is going to bear a child also, even though she is uh, old in her age now and has been barren her whole life. Elizabeth was one of those stories that they could never have kids, and so uh, she had uh, struggled her whole life. And I can tell you this, Zechariah will have prayed every single day of his life. God, please, please give us a child, please, please. That's all we ask, just give us a child. And his prayers were never answered. Now, Zechariah had stopped praying that a long time ago because now they're in their 60s most likely and it's way past childbearing years, uh, especially for a woman that could never bear children anyways, right? And so the angel says to Zechariah, your wife's gonna be pregnant. And Zechariah actually says to the angel, "Um, excuse me, Uh, Maybe we're confused. That prayer was one I prayed many, many years ago. Uh, It has since stopped. And second of all, I'm old and my wife is well advanced in years. That's how he puts it. Men, little tip right there. Great way of running that, right? I'm old. My wife is advanced in years. That's the way you want to talk. No wonder Zachariah has such a happy marriage. And so... um, Zechariah finds out his wife's going to be pregnant. He doesn't really believe that. Who would? And so the angel Gabriel says to him, you want to know how? Because I'm Gabriel and I'm glowing and I'm in the temple and I come from God. Uh, So that's how he actually says it, not quite about the glowing part, but uh, the rest is there. And and then he tells Zechariah, you can't talk anymore until the child comes. And so Zechariah is mute. And the angel now tells Mary God has already done something. That's why that passage starts in the sixth month because it's actually in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy because the story before that was Elizabeth's pregnancy. So Mary heads straight up to see Elizabeth because Elizabeth had hidden this news for five months. It says it in the scriptures. And then she started telling people. Now they didn't have Facebook back then so people in Nazareth didn't know that Elizabeth was pregnant yet. That's why the angel had to tell Mary. But when Mary told her parents, word was already traveling, they could confirm that. And as soon as that was confirmed, Mary said, can I head up and go and help Elizabeth. I mean, she's well advanced in years. She's now pregnant. That's an inside out and upside down life right there. Uh, She's got to deal with all this stuff and I want to go help her. So Mary heads up to go visit with Elizabeth. And right when she walks into the room with Elizabeth to greet her, Elizabeth says to Mary, oh my, how blessed are you that the fruit of your womb is my savior. What a beautiful confirmation that what the angel had said to Mary was true. 
And here Mary has the freedom to tell somebody because she can't tell anybody else. One, she's not showing yet, so now it's even a worse story. Hey, I, I bumped into an angel and he said I've, I've been conceived uh, with the Holy, by the Holy Spirit with the Messiah. Uh, sure, Mary, whatever. Maybe you should go rest because the sun is really hot, right? So she's up with Elizabeth. She tells Elizabeth and it's beautiful. Now, when Mary gets back down to Nazareth, at some point you, you know how this goes down, right? She's got to tell Joseph. Because he's, at this point, we don't know when she told him, but at this point, he's preparing a house for her, getting everything ready. His dreams are coming true. He's got the honorable woman in town. Everything's going well. He's a great carpenter. Everything he thought he was going to have in life is his. And can you imagine that conversation? Can you imagine that one? Mary sitting down with Joseph on a bench. Joe, listen, I, I've got some news, and I, I don't want you to, I don't want you to, like, keel over, okay? Because I want you to listen to the whole story before we're done, okay? I want you, the whole part. Don't interrupt. And then she tells him, so, so here's the deal, I'm pregnant. Maybe she didn't start there. Maybe she started with the angel, right? <laughs> but here's what we know. At the end of that story, Joseph goes and he wrestles with some stuff, man. Wouldn't you? Your wife just came to you, wife-to-be very soon, just came to you and said, um, I'm pregnant supernaturally by the Holy Spirit because an angel told me. I'm, I promise that's how it went down. And you have to go and decide if you believe her. I mean, would you believe her at that point? Matthew chapter one tells us the story of that moment in Joseph's life of that wrestle. And this is what it says. Matthew chapter one, verse 18, page um, 523 of our Bibles, if you're interested, 523. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. See, Joseph had discerned if he goes public on this thing, it's not going to go well for Mary at all. If he tells everybody, Mary's pregnant, so that's why we're killing the marriage, uh, then all of the town is going to go, oh my goodness. And here's the deal for Mary. Here are the three possibilities she faces. Possibility one, definitely likely, is that she would actually be uh, punished by stoning because she was an adulteress uh, in, this, in this setting. Now, because it was Nazareth and it was a small town, there is a possibility it wouldn't have gone down that way. What would have happened is Mary would have been asked to leave town. She would have been asked to go somewhere else because in town, she just would have been somebody that was an absolute outcast for what she had done. Everything Mary had built up to now was gone. It was over. Her reputation in town was shot. And Joseph did not want that humiliation for her. If she happened to stay in town, she was going to stay in town in a way that was going to be absolutely uh, ridiculed her whole life. She certainly couldn't be part of any of the, the synagogue stuff anymore. I mean, all of that was gone. You know that dream Mary had? That life that was starting to unfold for her? That one she was so super excited about? You've got to understand that's all gone now. So what Joseph decides to do is he says, listen, instead of doing that, I'm going to give Mary the space to be able to decide what she's going to do with this child in terms of whether she'll go up to Elizabeth and birth the child there and then come down and, and you know, nothing really happened. And so what he essentially decided to do was that he was going to say, look, things didn't work out between Mary and I. So, so we've just, we've closed off on the betrothal. That, uh, it's just a quiet divorce. Uh, nobody needs to know much except maybe the parents. And so there must have been some conversations with the parents that were going to take place that would be very awkward and difficult. And for Joseph, you understand this is rocking his world. You understand that, right? 
Look what happens. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You see, we read that stuff, and it's like this. Joseph had a dream, an angel showed up in the dream, so he obeyed. But it's, it's just, I'm sorry, I read that and I'm like, that, that, there's much deeper beauty here than that. Because have you had dreams before? I've had dreams before, I have them all the time. And I'll tell you something about my dreams that I know uh, that's mostly true. And I, I would say, in my case so far, always true. Uh, in some people's cases, not so much. But most of my dreams are just pretend. Okay, they're not real. Folks, in case you were wondering, your dreams aren't real. Okay, I get to tell my kids this all the time. My kids wake up from a dream that's either fantastic or horrid, okay? And when they wake up, I get to tell them that wasn't real. It, it's, it doesn't, here's how dreams work. You have stuff in your head, real stuff, real thoughts, real ideas, and then things happen to you, usually intense things. You get a big fright about something, you watch something scary, you know, something happens like that, or something wonderful happens, your birthday's coming in a few weeks, and so then you fall asleep, and what do you dream about? You dream about that incredible gift you're gonna get when you wake up, you tell your parents, oh my gosh, I was so excited in my dreams last night because it, I, I thought I was getting it. I thought I was getting the, the, the new gaming station, and, and now I woke up, and now I don't have it, now I'm sad. And then you get to go, yeah, that's, that's what dreams are. They are your imagination wide awake while you're sleeping so that you see pictures of things that aren't real. It, it particularly tells us that Joseph didn't have Gabriel show up in the middle of the day like Mary. Now he's dreaming and Gabriel shows up in his dreams. Now it was vivid, no doubt about that. But listen, if I woke up and I was Joseph, what would I think? I might, I might easily say something like this. Well, it was a dream. I do love Mary and I want this to be true. Mary's told me now, you know, the Holy Spirit and, and Gabriel and the whole deal. So now I have a dream, and who's in my dream? Oh, lo and behold, it's Gabriel who saw Mary. Uh, that makes sense, because Mary told me about Gabriel, and who else? Oh, uh, there's uh, the Holy Spirit who's conceived in her now, and the baby's gonna name Jesus. Mary told him that too. And hey, uh, remember, Joseph has studied the scriptures. He knows the prophecies, and one of the prophecies is about a virgin bearing a child that's gonna be the Messiah. So what does he do in his dream? He's, he's starting to throw stuff like that in. Oh, I could justify still hanging with Mary and, and marrying her and, and having a life with her. Maybe this is true. See, if I woke up, I might have gone that route. But Joseph, he wakes up, and he assumes For whatever reason, in that beauty of that dream, he assumes not only that that is true, but he decides to step into obedience. Now, let me just be clear. When Joseph decided to step into this story, you have to understand something. All of those dreams Joseph had about living the quiet life in Nazareth, being a carpenter, building the reputation of his family, which was kind of what you did as, as, as sons and daughters, is you made the reputation of your family better the next round. Uh, you were a better carpenter than your dad, and so the, the town was like, man, the, the, Joseph's family, they're awesome. Joseph's awesome. All of that is now called into question. How, how do we do the whole child thing? And I mean, he's an honest man, so he's not gonna lie about it. 
So now he's going to marry an adulteress. Now he believes differently, but everybody else isn't going to because Gabriel didn't show up in their dreams. And so now his reputation is shot too. He's going to have to take on the scourge that comes with Mary now. It's very likely Joseph and Mary would have to leave town. It's very likely they'll, they'll have to go do this elsewhere. And everything they thought they had before the story began with the angel, before God collided with their lives, all of that's gone for Joseph now. But he doesn't know the half of it, does he? Notice Mary. We do, they don't yet. You think their life got easier after this? Their life didn't get easier after this. Let's just, let's just travel for a second into what happens next, right? So Mary and Joseph find out that they have to go down to Bethlehem for a census, right? And this is at the, toward the end of Mary's pregnancy. So in her ninth month of pregnancy, third trimester, she's at that point where most of us know when you're in that stage, uh, you have the right to walk like this and go, don't touch me. I can eat what I want and leave me alone. I'm sitting on the couch. Somebody else take care of the other kids, right? Because you're tired, you're exhausted, you're uncomfortable. Everything else is all wrong with your body. The one thing you don't do, here's what you don't do. You don't travel on a donkey for hundreds of miles camping out by the side of the road. You don't sleep on the ground. You don't do that. You don't go to bed. You write a letter to the census people and say, we're not coming. Wife, very pregnant. <laughs> but Mary and Joseph, they travel down to Bethlehem in her very end of her pregnancy. When they get to Bethlehem, she births a child. And this child that was supposed to be born, remember, stick with me with the dream where that all started this, right? The child, where was the first child supposed to be born? right in the same house that Mary was born in. That's, that's how old. In the, in the new place that Joseph had built next to the father's house with all the family waiting outside, anticipating the birth of the first grandchild that was coming. So excited, so wonderful. It was supposed to be beautiful and it's not. Mary is in a barn in the middle of a little town she's never been in where she knows nobody except her husband who's exhausted. And the baby is born there because there's no space in a normal room in a normal place for them. It couldn't have been a worse scenario if you're comparing it to the dreams they started with before Gabriel showed up in Mary's house. Oh, and the, wait, wait a second. That's right. After the baby's born, briefly things go well. Not really. Some weird guys from the field show up and they start singing songs. And then these guys from the east come wearing weird hats and giving them gifts. I mean, I'm just saying, we, we look at these stories like, oh, it's so beautiful. But that would have been a weird moment, right? I'm in the barn and here come three guys on camels. And they're like, we came from a very long ways away. Thank you for birthing the king. And so uh, you're, you're surrounded by strangers. You're in a strange place. You birthed your first child. And as though that's not not bad enough. Here's what you find out. You find out again from another one of those angels that the entire governmental system in Jerusalem, five miles from you, because they're in Bethlehem now, is coming to kill your child. And so you can't go back to Nazareth and you can't go back to Jerusalem and you can't go anywhere familiar. So here's what the angel tells you. Go to Egypt. 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 Do you understand what that means for Joseph? This is Joseph. I want to go home. This is Mary. Egypt for a long time. So they go to a different cultural context with a bunch of people that have been their enemies for most of the time to go and hide their son from governments who want to kill him. And by the time their son's old enough to return back to life in Israel. Life in Israel has totally changed and going back to Nazareth is totally different now and that whole dream of being the carpenter's apprentice, uh, that's had to divert now to other things and then, oh yeah, wait for it, it gets better. 
as Jesus gets older, by the time he's 30, ministry begins. His mother travels with Jesus. Some of the other brothers uh, hang out uh, back in Nazareth and some travel and some are around and here's what happens, right? Here's what happens. They watch Jesus, especially Mary, move from someone who is full of promise to someone who is hated by the very people that have led them for centuries, right? Mary is a deep, devout Jewish girl, now woman. And the very people that have led her are hating her son. He's hated by the Roman government. He's hated by the Jewish leadership. He's hated by anything in darkness. There is a group following, certainly, and she watches that build and she wonders to herself, what is all this going to mean? Can you imagine the conversation Jesus had with Mary when he sat down with his mom and he said, look, this isn't gonna go the way you thought it might. I don't lead the world from a throne in Jerusalem yet. What happens next is gonna be difficult for you. They are gonna take me, they are going to slaughter me, and I'm going to die very badly. But don't worry, I will come back. Mary stood by while her son carried things. We pray we never have to watch our children carry. Mary stood by while they slaughtered her son on a cross. See, you have to understand as I do, that when Gabriel showed up in Mary's house and invited her into this story, he essentially robbed her of everything that was her story. He essentially said to her, everything you've dreamed, everything you've wanted in life is gonna have to be laid down for this one. We, we think it's such a blessing, but if we actually look at the story, we realize if we were observing this circumstantially, we would not call Mary's life blessed. Her life was wrecked, it was broken. We wouldn't call Joseph's life blessed. His life was wrecked and broken. But here's what we do know because we have the whole story. Though God did break their lives in his collision with their story, he broke their lives into beauty because they do have the most beautiful story on planet Earth. And both Joseph and Mary recognized this. Even in her youth, Mary said in her song to Elizabeth and in her response to Gabriel, if this is God's story for me, I receive it by God's grace and I am so blessed beyond words that you would see fit to call me into participating in your grand story. Mary considered blessing that she got to participate in God's story at this level. It didn't matter the cost. It didn't matter the circumstances. She did not consider God's blessing to be circumstantial. She considered God's blessing to be someone who was able to participate in God's story. God's blessing is that he calls us to participate in his story. And Joseph, despite the cost, when he recognized God was inviting him into his story for his glory, Joseph said, so be it, and went and married Mary, and took on whatever came with that story. This has been the invitation of the gospel all along, folks. The invitation of the gospel is simple. God collides with us, he rescues us from ourselves, and then his invitation is this. Abandon the story you thought you had for yourself, and choose the story I'm writing for you. Trust me enough that when I call you into things that you otherwise would have done differently if you didn't know me, that doing it my way is always going to produce a more beautiful story than doing it your way. This is our invitation this Christmas season. This is what Jesus taught. Jesus actually taught this as he got older. 
And this is what he said. This is what he said. When, when he's in ministry, he goes, that, if you're going to follow me, this is what that's going to look like. You are going to take on the crosses I give you to bear. You're going to carry your cross. Just as I carried mine for you, you will carry the cross that I will have you bear for my sake, for the redemption of others. There are going to be stories you're going to take on that are going to be heavy to carry. They are going to wreck your life. But you're going to take them on because you follow me and you're my ambassador just as my life was wrecked for you. And then he says this. He actually says this in the next line. If you should lose your life for my sake, you will find the story I've written for you. You will find life. But if you try to preserve your way of life, you will lose the very story I'm writing for you. You will lose the life I have for you. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, though in these momentary struggles we face on this planet, they are difficult, they cannot even be compared to the exceeding glory that is waiting for us. You see, Paul had this view. If we take on God's story, it will come with lots of difficulty in seasons in our life, but what it will produce, the beauty of that will far exceed any difficulty we may have walked through. This is also what Peter wrote, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. He writes about our great inheritance in the kingdom, and then he says this, though we might now face momentary struggles that are intense, oh, we rejoice in this, that at the end of the day, it is the great glory waiting for us where we'll see the full story unfold. Folks, listen. You and I are called into very difficult things at times decisions we have to make that are about God's story instead of our own. And this is the invitation of Christmas. We can do this in our dailiness. We can do this in in the season we're in. We can do this in our lives. Just think about it. Here's a few examples, just a few quick examples for you. Dailiness. Now we have on our website right now and on our Facebook and all that, we have those devotions we're putting on there, you know? So what we decided to add to the devotions, if you haven't noticed, or you may have already noticed, is there's a little challenge with each devotion. It starts right at the top of the devotion and it says the day, today's challenge is, and it's a challenge to do something crazy good for someone, right? So the ones I've seen so far, things like buy a cup of coffee for someone, maybe behind you in line in the coffee shop or, or uh, you know, uh, this, this, is one, this is one I think that's still coming, but, you know, go into a store and when you, you know, you see those people that are folding all the clothes everybody else tried on and, and you know the reason they're doing that is because on the employee list they're near the bottom and so somebody got to say you gotta fold the clothes and so they're just folding clothes. I mean most tedious job on planet earth, not quite but I'm just saying it's, it's up there. And what if you walked in beside them and you said, and you started folding clothes? It'd be a little weird at first. They'd look at you and go, what are you doing? And then you say this, well it's Christmas and God gave lots of himself for me, so I'm giving a little of myself to help you. If I'm not folding them correctly, if you could show me, I'd be happy to spend 10 minutes just helping you get this done. Whoa, crazy. So we have a little list of just daily things you can go do to just blow somebody away. Why? Because it's kind and because it's good? No, because it's God's story. It's you setting a little of your time, a little of your money aside to say, I'd rather be part of your story than part of mine today. It's learning to lay ourselves down for God seasonally. We have those little cards. You know the little cards we handed out last week? We'll still hand them out this week as well that say thank you. Well, we told you, go buy a bunch of coffee gift cards and stick them on there or buy a bunch of goodie bags. And I, I know, I was thinking the same thing. If I have 10 cards and it's $5 per card, that's 50 bucks. That's a lot of money I could do. And here's what God says. Hey, trust me on this one. Just this season, step out of your story for a minute and step into mine. 
See, we can do it in small ways like that. Just, just take a little card, hand it to someone. I'm telling you, in, in, our, in our context here locally, you start handing those little cards out with little gift cards, little goodie bags. You see somebody being super rude to one of the employees and then they walk away because they didn't have the gift that their little daughter wants. Walk up to them and say, I feel like you could use a little piece of chocolate. Here's a goodie bag for you. And then they'll look at the card and they go, I just got one of these like three days ago from somebody else. And you go, I know, it's okay. And it'll be awesome. And you tell them, you know, God's been good to me. I just want to be good to you. Why? Because when we put some of our money and some of our time and some of our focus into God's story instead of ours, it begins to teach us how to live in his story instead of ours. Sometimes it's going to be big things, folks. Uh, About 11 and a half years ago, God called Brooke and I to come and plant a church in Orlando, Florida. I mean, we were in California for crying out loud. I mean, dumbest thing on the planet. Just saying travel over here and start something with a bunch of people at a swimming pool that you don't yet know. I can tell you right now, in almost 19 years of marriage, hardest two years of our marriage were those, two first, those first two years of planting this church. Uh, we, had a, we had a five-week-old when we moved here, and we had a three-year-old, and we were not going to get pregnant with another one because we had no insurance. Because, you know, when you have no church because you're planting one, you have no insurance. Uh, we got pregnant. Someone should have told me how that works. Uh, anyways, um, we got pregnant, and so now we have these two, and she's pregnant, and that was, that, those were difficult years in, in our journey. Uh, uh, two and a half years ago, we stepped into the incredible privilege of seeing uh, our children come home to us uh, from Ethiopia, and it was beautiful. But when you have eight kids as beautiful as they are, they are little warriors that try to kill each other and their parents simultaneously, all eight of them. And so it's been a rough run. But I'll tell you something, if you ask me right now, would you go back and do it all again I, without the blink of an eye, I would say absolutely, no, no, no doubt about it. Because out of that brokenness, out of those broken times, more beauty and redemption has been born than I can begin to tell you. And it's still, it's still coming, more's coming. See, the invitation of Christmas started with Gabriel showing up in Mary's house saying this, Mary, God has a story for you. It's a big story but by definition, it wrecks your story. Joseph, God has a story for you, it's a big story, but by definition, it wrecks your story. You had dreams, you had hopes, you had a life, you had plans. They will have to come to an end. Do not buy the message of American Christianity that says, you have a great story, God's gonna come alongside and add to it. No, this is the gospel. You had a story, I'll give you that. God's gonna come and when he collides with you, he is going to wreck that story. He's gonna call you into a different one. And at times, you will wonder if you shouldn't have just said to Gabriel, maybe you should go find someone else. But in the end, when you see what happens in God's story, you will say as Paul did, the momentary sufferings I faced for God's story cannot be compared to the grand glory of his redemptive end to that story. This is Christmas. It is not about doing good. It's not about being kind. It's about laying down your momentary story each day for God's grand one by doing little things that cost you something and add to God's redemptive story. May we live Christmas this month in a new vision of what it means to be blessed that our blessing is not what we get or don't get. Our blessing is that we participate in the story of God. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your incredible love for us. Thanks for Mary and Joseph and their vision for what was happening to them, that they were willing to obey even at great cost. And even throughout their life, God, as their life got more and more difficult, frankly, because they were living in your story, imagining Mary's heart being torn out of her chest multiple times throughout her life in ways we can't begin to imagine. And yet now, 2,000 years later, looking back and going, what a blessed story she had. May we have the same vision for our stories, even though we cannot see their future end yet. That 2,000 years from now, we would look back on our story and not say, gosh, I wish I'd participated more in God's story versus trying to preserve my own, but instead that we would say, man, I, I kept giving more of myself to the things I perceived God was up to in little ways and in big ways. And whatever we face, whatever cost is affected on us to participate in what you might be up to, may we, may we stare into that with great vision, recognizing that that cost cannot be compared to what you are gonna write through it in your story. May this Christmas be new for us, God, as we are kind and good, not because we need to be kind and good, but because you call us to lay our story down for yours. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.